0: Good morning. Uh, welcome you to the uh, third session of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense. Uh, we are focusing today on the issues relevant to uh, surveillance and detection, and uh, we wanted to uh, commence proceedings on time. We'll be joined by Senator Lieberman uh, shortly, uh, but in the meantime, we're grateful to have the presence of uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. a uh, senator, as many of you know, was elected mm-hmm. in 2006. He is, one. I guess I look back on my own experience in the House and wonder how many people have paid as much attention to uh, preparedness and and prevention and and preparedness over the years. And the Senator, uh, since his election, has made uh, terrorism prevention and preparedness a very much a priority of his uh, Senate career, in addition to several other interests that he has. He presently is... uh, member of the Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions and we're grateful for his uh, insight uh, to commence the third panel on uh, surveillance and detection. Senator, uh, we know uh, probably got to be back up there by 10 or thereafter. We're grateful for your presence and uh, look forward to uh, getting the benefit of your perspective. Thank you, Thank you Senator. Mr.
1: Secretary, I appreciate it. It's uh, a pleasure to be here with the Blue River Study Panel glad to be here with you and with Secretary Shalala and uh, particularly pleased to be here with uh, Ken uh, Weinstein who was a very bright honorable and uh, forward looking person in the Department of Justice when we were working on issues together uh, during the Bush administration so thank you and and James good to be with you. you you all know how much U.S. Senators who contribute to this uh, discussion as evidenced by the uh, presence of my two colleagues here to hear my important views. (laughs) Um, But I do bring a perspective on this. I began looking into the cyber security issue when I first came here, and I drilled very deeply into that issue led the Democratic side on the negotiations toward the cyber bill, wrote the Intelligence Committee's report on cyber. And um, there are a lot of similarities, I think, in terms of the structural difficulties that Congress has in dealing with uh, an emerging threat like this before it's become so manifest that everybody is screaming for action. Um, I think that the bioterror threat lurks right behind the cybersecurity threat as I need both or just oh, here we go. this one I guess is not working the uh, bioterror threat lurks not too far behind the cybersecurity threat as a question of a grave but not yet immediate impact to uh, our country um, some of the things that I hope the blue ribbon study panel will look into um, and that concern me one is that there is a considerable bank of information on biological warfare dating back to the biological warfare planning of the United States and the Soviet Union 50 years ago. Um, Unlike a nuclear warhead, that information can travel very readily and uh, in the hands of Terrorists, or others who wish us harm, it can be very dangerous. So, how do we control the proliferation of that bank of information that our countries built um, back in those days? Second, technology is leaping ahead, and now with the type of laboratory equipment that you can buy over the internet and have shipped to your home, you can recreate the type of work that those 50 years ago, it took a national laboratory to accomplish. So the opportunity for construction of a bioterror threat has now been dramatically expanded. We have also seen a proliferation of non-state threats and the signal characteristic of non-state threats is that they are not amenable to traditional deterrence. It was the mutually assured destruction that kept the peace when the Soviet Union and the United States were nuclear armed. I don't think that a similar fear of consequences animates the uh, terrorists and the jihadis who lurk within other societies Um, And so I hope that that would be an issue that would be considered by the panel as well. I understand that there may for some of the biological agents um, be a very different reaction to the agent if it is experienced in weaponized super dosages. So the behavior of an organism may be different when it's naturally propagated than when it's experienced by the human body in massive overdoses such as weaponized delivery might create. It is not clear to me that we're prepared for dealing with the different way the body may react to super dosage, um, and in that case... naturally occurring disease like Ebola or anthrax or something like that uh, could take on very different characteristics when it becomes the bioterror weapon. As we saw, the uh, attention to the Ebola virus in the United States, even though the risk and the exposure were statistically insignificant and very well handled by our public health resources, shows that... Behind the immediate biological risk of a bioterror weapon comes a psychological reaction um, that could have a very very significant effect in terms of panic and public behavior. And I don't believe that the follow-on psychological consequences of the public psychological psychological consequences of a biological agent being at work in the United States have been properly thought through or identified. Um, I think it's important that we look to make sure that in our preparation for this eventuality um, there is as little incumbency protection as Washington is capable of delivering. We are Uh, the home base here in Washington DC of incumbency protection. But if there's ever a place where we need to be extremely solicitous of new and disruptive technologies, this is it. But the voices of those technologies are rarely heard. The established actors usually have Washington's ear and incumbency protection is a particularly dangerous phenomenon with respect to protecting ourselves against the bioterror threat. The last thing I'll say is that uh, I hope that the Blue Ribbon Study Panel will take a look at how well organized we are both at the executive and legislative level for addressing this problem. Uh, My experience of at least looking at the executive branch uh, from my legislative perch is that this responsibility spans a great variety of agencies and is not gathered in a single individual who is at a level of clout and seniority adequate to pull all of those agencies together and produce a, an effective result. Um, If anything, the situation on the legislative side is worse. This spans an innumerable number of committees and subcommittees, and the difficulty of pulling things together is um, demonstrated by recent efforts that uh, I have made to try to get the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee to have a joint hearing to consider this problem. The Intelligence Committee has very important responsibilities in this area because it looks into the terror threat, but knowing about it doesn't help much if you're not ready to defend against it and that's where the Help Committee comes in. But because the Help Committee staff haven't been cleared and for a variety of other institutional reasons, Um, we haven't been able to pull even that off when you throw in the fact that Homeland Security, Government Affairs Committee also has important responsibilities in this area. Armed Services also has some important responsibilities in this area. And there are probably other committees that could, with the uh, uh, entrepreneurial instincts of their committee staff at work, think of a way that they have an important role in this issue. Um, I think it's really important that we try to find a way to organize ourselves better. There is a weapons of mass destruction caucus led by Senator Burr and Senator Casey. I commend them for their leadership, but the rivalry between a caucus and a committee is a long-established Washington phenomenon, and caucuses rarely win. So um, I think your work will provide a very important rallying point, and uh, if there's anything that else, anything else that I can do to be helpful, I would like to do this. I think you are addressing a vital issue where there are truly important needs and where for a variety of reasons, the uh, agencies of government have not been able to organize themselves to be as effective as uh, they should have been to date. Uh,
2: Senator, uh, are you suggesting that we should look at the governance issue as well?
1: Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, um, well, you all have been around in very significant governmental positions and I think the experience of those who spent some time in this game uh, is pretty clear that if the administrative structure isn't conducive to a result, it makes a result very hard to achieve. And The way you break through, there are two ways you break through that. One is you get the administrative structure right and get some focus on an issue ahead of time. And the second is you wait for something awful to happen and then there is a stampede. The problem is that when things are done by stampede, they're not usually done as effectively and thoughtfully as they could be. And there's often very significant overreach. And um, so the best of all possible worlds is to set up the institutions of government in such a way that they can be effective in advance.
3: On the topic of both the executive and the legislative branches being unfocused or uh, disorganized in this regard, one uh, very specific item is that it's my understanding that in the Bush administration, there was a special assistant for biodefense, a position that is not held in the current uh, administration. Uh, I know that there's uh, some negative thoughts about the proliferation of czars in and, and the White House, but uh, that's a pretty important position. And it might be something that, uh, given your expertise in this issue and, and, and your party, uh, you might be able to talk to the president about.
1: I think that um, there, I wouldn't want to argue against such a position, but I would put two caveats uh, around it. One is that it it has become a very prominent political attack that somebody is establishing a czar that they're not subject to advice and consent that this is more of a you know domineering and and uh, imperial Obama presidency and that whole and once you have a political theme like that that's established it's a very hard to ask people to get out of that rut and so. Everybody's going to want to go to that political theme if it suits their interest, and for a lot of people, it suits their interest. So that creates a significant caveat. Well, maybe, maybe the other is that you could it's, not, it's not clear that um, a position in the White House matters much if it's not clear that that position in the White House has the president's ear, has budget authority over the issue, and has an ability to get secretary's attention. It's been, uh, as Secretary Shalala and Secretary Ridge will both know, it is a long-standing skill set within the various cabinet agencies to defend against White House appointees. And so the mere existence of a White House appointee I think is a long way from a solution to the problem. You really have to look at the whole administrative structure, and see where the power network flows through it, to see whether it's serious or not. Okay.
0: Okay. I saw smiles center.
1: of recognition from the secretaries, by the way, for the record. <laughs> <loving> the <laughs> <job>. <laughs> <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> you were reading our minds, not our lips. <laughs>
4: Just to pivot off your comments about cyber, I think uh, I agree with you. I see the parallels between the cyber challenge and the bio challenge. You know, w- we could debate as to which is the greater threat to American security, but it does have a lot of the the bio issue has a lot of the same problems that the the cyber issue has posed to us. You know, a variety of different agencies involved, coordination across you know vast range of logistical challenges and the like within government, privacy issues, oversight issues, Um, since you've been in the trenches on the cyber matter, and and we do seem to be making some progress there, obviously, maybe a little late in the day, but we're making some progress. Any parallels there, any lessons from where we've gotten to in the cyber area that you think can apply to this?
1: I think the danger with bioterror is much greater. Cyber attacks come in so many different forms. Um, that relatively non-damaging forms manifest themselves and people can begin to get used to the idea. So it is a bad thing when Sony gets hacked. It is a bad thing when Anthem Blue Cross loses all of its uh, customer data. But it's a very different thing than having the electric grid go down for a month in the winter. Um, There aren't a whole lot of such intermediate steps when it comes to bioterror. You go straight to people dying and folks in very ominous-looking biohazard suits running around the streets of our country and a very, very immediately serious situation. So we have a little bit more of a warning, a little bit more of a chance for there to be the political accommodation that something needs to take place. But I think fundamentally um, it's important that there be a recognition of the seriousness of the threat, and then people will come into alignment. I think we could have and we should have had a very good cyber security bill back when. Um, but some very rank politics that need not be the subject of this hearing interfered. And as a result, we are way behind uh, where we should have been. Um, So that makes the role of this panel all the more important because if you can be a forum for helping people to understand how very serious this risk is, then um, I think that's a very, very important service. And for those who are recalcitrant about responding because for one reason or another they have a political opposition to it, it's always worth bearing in mind that if the risk is serious, then there's the political risk that when the day comes, then you get the stampede reaction. And whatever they may be worried about in a thought-through process and a thought-through piece of legislation becomes dramatically worsened when nobody's interested in hearing from them any longer because their body's in the streets.
0: Senator, uh, you've obviously decided to. Uh, I'm kind of curious what brought to, to your head in your heart the notion you wanted to deal with the uh, preparedness, uh, uh, prevention, and, and, and I don't know whether it was a previous experience, but it's. I, I think you're probably unique among the members of the House and Senate who's really focused on this as part of your. Uh, Uh, legislative responsibilities. So I guess the question I have is, just one out of curiosity, what is it that drives you to be so critically interested in this issue? Because we obviously think it's very important so the members of the panel and so the audience that participate. Secondly, your sense of uh, among the priorities of your colleagues on the Hill, regardless of party, where does it fall? And that leads to a third question, which uh, is somewhat troubling, given that you're, description of the diffuse nature of responsibility. This panel intends on uh, sending to Congress, uh, this is, we don't want this gathering dust. We're going to have some short and long-term recommendations, and it can get lost in the jurisdictional battles, uh, and so unless there, we have champions on the Hill that say this is very important, we ought to accelerate it, maybe we got to have some joint committee hearings so some of these recommendations can be elevated, debated, and <coughs> hopefully... Uh, Become part of uh, the the agenda and and part of our uh, broader national policy. So, one, I'm fascinated by your particular interest. I got interested a long time ago in a bunch of tornadoes bounced around my congressional district and wrote the Stafford Act. Secondly, a sense of your your colleagues in Congress. And thirdly, how do we deal with a diffuse jurisdiction when we want to uh, bring very serious recommendations short and long term? that uh, our chairman, Senator Lieberman, has championed from the moment he sat down. Let me...
5: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: let me welcome my friend and colleague, Senator Lieberman, who has just arrived. i right, delighted to see you, you Joe. Right. Let
5: me return that
1: welcome. Thank you. Please, oh, um, This lies... Everybody is aware of that familiar four-way box that divides the immediate and the important... And what's not immediate and not important gets no attention, and what is immediate and is important gets lots of attention, but what's immediate and not important always gets more attention than what's important and not immediate. And for now, biodefense is in that important but not immediate box, and we need to raise the level of urgency. I came into government working for a governor who you probably remember, Bruce Gundlin of Rhode Island. I know Secretary Shalala remembers him.
5: A truly unforgettable governor.
1: He was an unforgettable governor. And uh, we walked into a banking crisis in which virtually all of the banks in the state had to be shut down. All of the uh, state-insured ones had to be shut down literally day one of the administration. We walked into the biggest... um, percentage deficit any state has ever reported, and we walked into a workers' compensation mess in which every single insurer came into the governor and said, we're out of here. We're done. We're canceling all our policies at the end of their periods, and um, every single one of those, and individually and collectively, those problems caused an enormous amount of suffering for people in Rhode Island. We had our own private recession through all of that. There was an enormous amount of misery. There was an enormous amount of fear when people lost access to their bank accounts. Every single one of those was preventable if people in government had been doing their jobs. And it's not just our job in government to handle the immediate problems that come through the door. We need to be like Wayne Gretzky, who said that great hockey players don't just go to where the puck is, they go to where the puck is going to be. And if we're not ready where the puck is going to be, then when it gets there, we're going to look like fools. And so I see it as part of my responsibilities to try to figure out where the puck is going to be. And in terms of national security, I think cybersecurity and bioterror are the two great, unmet, unanswered dangers that we face. Joe, so uh, your timing was perfect. Yeah, no,
5: I, I actually missed the hearing all <laughs> your presentation. I'm sorry, your plane. I'm and sure you
1: can get it off YouTube.
5: <laughs> I will do it for sure. But just in the little bit, I heard um, the Senator Whitehouse really has a real, a real clear sense of priorities and uh, works very hard uh, to uh, get some of the things done that he sees as really the threats to the country. We worked a long time on cybersecurity. Uh, I, I, I was confident we nearly I made passed it. Passed the baton to him and he's carried it on with some success. So, uh, thank you for being here. My well, pleasure thank you very, very much.
0: On. As I mentioned before, we'll be looking for champions on the hill because we like, we're going to make some very serious short and long term recommendations and we'll be knocking on your door. We very much appreciate your participation. Well, morning. I appreciate this all of you a are precursor to our calling on you.
1: All of you are busy and important people and the fact that you've put your effort into this is vital. Washington is a city full of blue ribbon panels. This is an important one, and I wish you Thank Godspeed. Thank you very much.
5: Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. Well, uh, let's call the, uh, the, pr- the panel one, which follows a congressional perspective. We have an extraordinary group of uh, people uh, who are coming before us today, and i uh, Really a benefit of rich riches. So uh Dr. Dr. Julie Gerberding, Dr. Julie Fisher, and Dr. Norman Kahn. Thank you uh, all very much uh, for being here. One more coming, thank you. uh, I'm still a little bit uh, humbled by the number of doctors here until I realize that I have a J.D. (laughs) 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 It's not quite the (laughs) equivalent. Who who wants to go first? We have Dr. Uh, Gerbergen first. Is that okay? Yes, sir. Thank Uh,
2: you. Uh,
5: For those who don't know, now Executive Vice President for Strategic Communications at Global Public Policy and Population Health, um, Merck and former director of uh, which position we know and appreciate it very much of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Thanks for being here.
6: Thank you. Um, and I appreciate um, the timeliness and the focus of this panel. Um, you know, when I was preparing for this, I couldn't help but think back on Ebola and the, um, the reaction I had when I was watching that crisis unfold was profound sadness because for the last uh, more than a decade, we've worked so hard at CDC and elsewhere in our government to try to be prepared for emerging threats, and we were not prepared for Ebola, even though it had been on the threat list since um, the threat list was created. So I had to really ask myself, well, where did I go wrong? Where did our government go wrong? Why is it that my company um, could make a vaccine in short order when it was absolutely needed, but we didn't have one in the stockpile up until that point? So what really was wrong with our system that um, despite everything that we known and have learned, especially since 9 we still have not really taken threats off the table and created that strong line of preparedness that we had hoped to create. You know, when I was responsible for the public health preparedness, I was relatively agnostic as to whether the threat was intentional or whether it was created by the best terrorists of all, Mother Nature. And I think in almost all of these cases, um, these are now in the category of predictable surprises. If we had sustained a level of alertness and systems of surveillance that were sophisticated enough to match the known threats that were in our midst and let me just use Ebola as an example even though I recognize that was obviously a mother nature threat and not an intentional threat Um, we have known that bats in Africa harbor hemorrhagic fever viruses for a long time We have watched the Egyptian fruit bat and the other implicated species move their migratory patterns across the continent. We have observed the presence of these hemorrhagic fever viruses in bats in more and more places across Africa. We've also observed the incredible social disruption, the urbanization, the movement of people into areas where previously they would not have had contact with animals or bats. And we've seen isolated examples where spillovers have occurred and outbreaks um, with significant human consequence have erupted. We also know the infrastructure in these areas is weak, to say the least, and that there was very little preparedness for any kind of emerging infectious disease threat, let alone one that was as serious as Ebola. So in a sense, those are all domains of surveillance. And we think about surveillance of the pathogen in humans <laughs> But actually, we need contextual surveillance. We need the ability to understand the animal environment in which um, the natural threats arise. We need to understand the sociologic environment, the cultural environment, um, particularly the social and cultural environment when we're talking about intentional threats. And we certainly need better surveillance about how systems of care do or do not have the capacity to respond and to to deal with these threats. Um, When we... When we were thrust into the anthrax crisis in 2001, we had to act fast and learn fast and respond very fast with very little um, experience dealing with an international threat of that nature. And it was an international threat, although most people didn't realize that it had extended beyond the United States because some of the mail extended beyond the United States. But when, when you when we did the after action reviews for the anthrax situation, tried to codify the most important surveillance activities that needed to occur going forward. And what has happened since that time is systems have been created. um, They've been, I think, repurposed. The funding has been repurposed. Um, The attention span has moved to other priorities of health and, and human safety. And so we have systematically built up and then disassembled that line of surveillance and response capability that we that we built, not because any one individual decided it wasn't important, but because we allowed competing priorities to interfere and to attenuate what had written off to a good start. but now, um, if you speak to people at least in the u s public health sector the funding has been dramatically reduced, the people are gone, and what was um, a potential strong front line of capability has been significantly diminished. And I, I applaud so many of the efforts that have been sustained. I think the BARDA program is a very vital piece of our capability development for both surveillance and risk mitigation. But I think we need a refreshed strategy, and we have to figure out how to make that Process even more attractive to biotech um, industries as well as larger industries so that we create the stockpile of protection that we need. We, we, we can do it. It didn't take too long to get three Ebola vaccines uh, available for clinical testing when we had to do it. So why wait until the crisis when the capability has existed all along? And I think that's a shared responsibility. It isn't just the government. The private sector has the responsibility to play in that environment as well. But we do need to come together with strong leadership to say these are the national priorities. Let's step up to the plate and get the job done right. We can't afford not to.
5: That's a great uh, introduction and I appreciate the directness of it too. Um, With the permission of my colleagues on the panel I think we'd like to hear the other two witnesses and then we'll get into questions and answers. Dr. Fisher?
2: (laughs) Okay. Thank you. I'd like to thank the panel for the work you're doing and for the invitation to address you here today. I appreciate it. So, to follow on to what Dr. Geberding said, everything that was said of the U.S. is doubly true of trying to enhance disease surveillance systems and sustain their functioning in the international setting. There are myriad competing priorities. Um, The burdens of disease in many low-income countries are immediate, real, and take a toll on human lives and economic development on a daily basis. So when we look at building those capacities, the focus is often on disease-specific surveillance needs. How do we detect diseases like HIV, malaria and TB and do our best to address those specific burdens and to show the impact of programs? Efforts to do that Um, including the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which was started in the, the Bush Administration and continues now, have had an enormous impact on public health and on child survival. But many of those programs, although they strengthened capabilities, did so in a way that really focuses on specific disease reporting and specific disease outcome. Emergencies like the Ebola outbreak, um, like other emerging infectious diseases that can be listed on a periodic basis from the 1990s onward, uh, the emergence of, of viruses like Nipah virus, the SARS virus, have continually called attention to the need to strengthen systems across the board, to help in low and, in and middle income countries um, to strengthen systems, not just to detect a specific disease, but to knit together all the, ca- the capacities that have been built so that information can be collected and acted upon with disease outbreak investigations, with the ability to respond and contain um, emerging disease events in real time. So what we, we have learned is that it's a continuum. Um, so if you'll pardon me for a brief excursion into my liberal arts education, um, we have, uh, which I also have with the doctorate section, um, the, the novel Anna Karenina, by Tolstoy begins with one of the most famous lines in literature, you know, every, every happy family is the same, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And unfortunately, that is true of disease surveillance and response capabilities all across the world. In low and middle income countries, there are distinctions in the structural challenges in the human resource challenges in the infrastructure gaps that mean that solving them with a broad stroke is quite challenging. However, we can also look at the Anna Karenina example um, to understand why this, is, this, why this is so difficult. For Anna Karenina's marriage to work, everything had to come together, not just one thing. It all had to work at the same time. And that is true of the ability to detect emerging and epidemic-prone diseases, whatever the origin, from bedside at the health center to the point of reporting them to national authorities who have the obligation to report them to the international community so that countries all over the world can work together to mobilize resources and respond effectively. Um, As we saw in the Ebola outbreak, which is an unfortunate immediate case study, these systems uh, must... It's not enough to have a single astute clinician, although sometimes an astute clinician with a, a... good instincts and a a thick contact list can circumvent broken systems. That's not reliable. The systems have to work from the point of care in which a community is aware of risks and has the access to a health system where there are trained clinicians aware of priority diseases and empowered with the acumen, the awareness, and the authority to, to report those diseases and those events to a designated unit that has both the expertise to conduct a risk assessment and the resources and the power to initiate an investigation and to begin the process of reporting and containing the event. There's all those processes have to work from bedside to collection of information, to risk assessment, to outbreak or investigation, to reporting. So what are we doing about this? Well, in the, in the last 10 years, Um, The U.S. and its international partners have invested in systems of governance and in systems capacity building. Um, In the U.S., through the efforts of the CDC, USAID, and also through security agencies, through the Department of Defense's Defense Threat Reduction Agency's Cooperative Biological Engagement Program, the State Department's Biosecurity Engagement Program, we are looking at building those systems to detect unusual events and report them promptly. Um, That effort has been focused on the agreements of 196 member states to build the capacities to detect, assess, report, and respond to disease events of any origin. First in the international health regulations, which is binding on 196 member states, a standard that they agreed to. And then more recently, the Obama administration has tried to galvanize and accelerate progress toward those goals with the global health security agenda. That includes uh, milestones for measuring the ability to detect as well as to prevent and respond to disease outbreaks. We have a set of goals. We know what we need to do. We have an idea of how to do it. Now we need the who. We need a trained global health workforce that's aware of, empowered to, and and equipped to act. And it's not an easy thing to do, Um, but it's a, a first step. We've made first steps and the question is now how we sustain them and how we keep maintaining and sustaining the progress between outbreaks, not just during events when everyone's attention is galvanized. Thank you.
5: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Khan, consultant, counter-bio LLC, former director, intelligence community, counter-biological weapons program. Where, where did you work when you were? CIA. CIA. Mm-hmm. Thanks for being
7: here. Well, I appreciate the invitation of the panel and the opportunity to to share remarks with you on this topic. Good. Uh, a bit of... Uh, Background: You've already heard this, I'm sure, from um, uh, from other panelists. But um, is, this right. is not on. Is is that better? Better, better, better. Ah, thank you. Sorry about that. Okay, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I can hear it now. It's much better. All right. So I can hear myself. Uh, so so we all know that the the knowledge and and the equipment associated with with. With biology um, are widespread. It's essentially uncontrollable. Very different from the nuclear paradigm. It used to be that people would confuse bio and nuke. I think we've gotten past that, and people now understand bio is very definitely not the same as nuclear. Both WMD potentially, but there are huge differences between them. You cannot control the spread of biology in any way, shape, or form. Uh, nor can you control the availability of bio equipment. Uh, as you know, the sophistication within biology is is uh, just it 's at a remarkable pace and, and things that are done today in high schools that a couple of decades ago would have been state of the art science in biology, so it 's devolved down to that level. Um, I know a lot of remarks are focused uh, on pathogens. I would also like to point out to the panel that from a, a biological weapons perspective, you don't, it doesn't have to be a pathogen. It can be a small compound that's a bioregulator. So if you think of a plant like Prozac, which has hopefully beneficial effects on patients, you think of the flip side of that. You know, these are not pathogens, but they are compounds that can have very adverse biological effects in the physiological sense, and that's all part of the BW threat from my Perspective. All right. So it's not just pathogens. It's compounds that are biological in nature. Small peptide. peptides, for example, components of parts of proteins, all right? That, that have immense physiological effects. Uh, and how many people worldwide have the ability to play with this stuff? The, the number is in the millions. It's a huge number. It's increasing all the time. Uh, and again, this is this this is not controllable. Uh, and you have biology going on in labs, uh, government labs, private sector labs, um, academic labs, and in people's homes. So you can, for X thousand dollars, five, ten thousand dollars, purchase very, very sophisticated equipment. You can get this on eBay. You can set up a, a lab in your garage or in your apartment. And people have done this. It's not that uncommon. And there's really, really, really good science happening in those apartments and garages, all right? Um, So what I want to focus on today uh, is a part of the BW threat um, that maybe doesn't receive quite the attention that other aspects of the threat do. So you can focus on state programs, you can focus on terrorist group programs, and then what I'm gonna talk about today is the lone actor. There's a presentation later today that's going to talk about the psychology of the lone actor. I'm not going to be talking about that aspect of it. So my, my, my focus today is really uh, based upon what I did in my, in my previous government service and, and thoughts that I've developed you know, since then. So if you ask yourself, what kind of damage could a lone actor do in biology, a lone actor, BW person do? Um, the way I would propose to think about this is to say, okay, if it's a question of the balance between capability and intent. So at the low end, you can have a relatively unskilled person cook up ricin in a kitchen and use it to poison someone. And the FBI has plenty of files about ricin cases. So that's where capability and intent match at the low end. Okay. Right? Now, at the high end, you can have a a highly skilled virologist or microbiologist, molecular biologist. I'll throw in... There are are other parts of biology that are relevant here. Immunologists, I'm talking about tinkering with the immune system. A person with high skills in those disciplines with really nefarious intent, you've got a really big problem there because if that capability and that intent match at the high end, you're basically done, all right? You have a problem that is, is, is you really can't deal with, all right? Now there are also cases historically where intent and capability haven't matched. So um, if you look at Rikyo, the Japanese cult in the 90s, uh, they uh, famous for their sarin attacks, all right? They also had an anthrax program, all right? It did not work, failed. Um, it failed, in my opinion, because even though the intent was there to do great harm, the capability wasn't. The person who was in charge of their anthrax program didn't have the right skill set to do it. And they ended up using a vaccine strain. Basically, intent capability did not match there, and they got nothing happened with respect to, to anthrax. You can also have a case where... Um, capability is greater than intent. And for that, I, w- I would propose um, the Bruce Ivins, the Bruce Ivins, anthrax attacks, the amerithrax attacks in, in the fall of 2001. Ivins could have done a lot more with his skill set. All right. So their capability was greater than intent. All right. So that's how I think about the degree of threat. And obviously, the, 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 the most pressing of those is a, a highly skilled individual who wants to do something really, really, really bad. Okay. Um, Ideally, you'd like to defend against this by preventing it from happening in the first place. So when you look at the intelligence community's function of an indications and warning, don't let bad stuff happen, right? Um, So, uh, there was a, a study that came out uh, earlier this year, University of University College of London study. Out of 119 wolf, lone wolf attackers, these are not bioterrorists, all right, but these are just lone wolf attacks. Out of 109, out of the sample of 119 cases that they looked at, 60% of those attackers leaked details of their plans to someone. All right, so that brings. Uh, I'm not, I don't. I don't recall. I don't recall if it was a UK folk only yeah, UK or not. Right. I don't know. Uh, can't answer that. Sorry. Um,
5: so
7: they weren't very long. Well, no. Well, no. Well, I mean, uh, were you asking about where the countries of origin of the individuals or yeah, what? I'm
5: just curious, but it, 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 it's
7: okay. They were all alone. Yeah, they were all. They were all acting on their own. They, they, they were all lone actors, right? right. Not bio, but they were all lone actors, and they were looking at what kinds of clues might be out there, and they found that 60% of them actually, in one form or another, could have been on the Internet or take up telling a friend or family who were interviewed after the fact that. It turns out somebody was aware that there was something going on here before the fact. So this, this brings me to what I want to talk about a lot today, and that's what I'll call bystanders. These are the people who become aware of activities of concern, they can be friends of the family, they can be family members, they can be colleagues, they can be the general public. And I'll give you just two examples of that. Uh, in April 2013, an Indonesian by the name of Riano uh, was arrested by Indonesian authorities. Uh, he had posted a farewell notice to his parents on his Facebook page. And it said, quote, God willing, I will take action at the Myanmar embassy. He was arrested in Jakarta uh, with another guy on a motorbike. They had five pipe bombs. They were on their way to the Myanmar embassy, and they were going to blow it up uh, because of uh, purported insults to Muslims in Myanmar. Uh, So how does this relate to bystanders? Uh, The authorities were alerted to his Facebook posting by other Internet users. Somebody picked it up, turned it in, and bad stuff didn't happen. Another example, uh, I, I'll probably butcher the pronunciation, it's, it's Polish. Bruno Kiechen, Polish uh, professor of chemistry, right? Was arrested in Krakow in November 2012. He had four tons of explosives along with detonators, and he was going to blow up the Polish parliament. Um, didn't happen because he was arrested. Why was he arrested? His wife, who was a biologist, turned him in when he started asking her questions about which pathogens and which diseases were the most deadly. That's a bystander. And he was interested in biology, decided to go to explosives instead. And he was a chemist, he probably had the capability to do something else with bio, but he chose not to do that. Um, and police put him under surveillance after his wife called called in that tip, and they ended up arresting him. And some of his students at the university where he taught had also alerted um, university officials about some of the statements that he had been making in class. That he had to take action and do something about the government. So those are all examples of, of bystanders. Okay, so how do you how do you, how do you work the bystander? process, and I'll say process because uh, because you think of the end results of a bystander as an event, but it's actually a process. There are lots of things that go through a bystander's mind before a bystander actually takes action. Uh, you have to observe something and become aware of it. You ask yourself ask yourselves questions like, "Wow, well, is it my Place to say something here. What if it's a trusted colleague? What if it's a family member? Is any of my business? Will it make a difference? Will they take action? Will I get in trouble as a whistleblower? So the, there's an actual bystander process that that has been written on, um, and and the question is how do you how do you work with the bioscience community? to inform them of their bystander responsibilities. Uh, There's something called the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity, NSABB, which you may or may not have uh, been familiarized with in in the course of of, uh, the presentations. Uh, And they're an NIH construct, and they address issues related to biosecurity and what's called um, dual research of concern, so legitimate research that has the potential to be to be misused. Uh, in 2011, the NSABB issued a report. The title of the report was "Guidance for Enhancing Personnel Reliability and Strengthening the Culture of Responsibility." I, I focus on culture of responsibility. So, two recommendations that I'm going to read here. Uh, first recommendation of the NSABB in this report. Institutions conducting biological agents and toxins research are recommended to implement programs or processes that enable the reporting of concerning behaviors. Second uh, recommendation of the NSABB in the same report. Individuals working with stuff must understand and acknowledge their responsibility to report activities that are inconsistent with a culture of responsibility or otherwise troubling. Likewise, institutional and laboratory leadership must acknowledge their responsibility to respond to reports of concerning behavior and undertake actions to prevent retaliation along the lines of whistleblower. So those are recommendations in this report. Uh, the NSABB does still exist, but these are just recommendations that are out there. Uh, so you really have to act on this. So you're going to get a talk later this afternoon uh, uh, from someone from the FBI, Ed Yu. Um Ed has done what I consider to be absolutely heroic work to engage the do-it-yourself bio community, uh, other communities uh, across this country. And, this, and also internationally in the, in the sense that there's something called iGEM, the International uh, Genetic Engineering Machine Competition where people from all over the world do really cool stuff with bio and they, and they get awards for it. And, and some of that research is knock-your-socks-off research, and some of that is done by high school students. There's actually a high school iGEM competition. So Ed has done amazing work to, to sensitize those communities to their personal responsibilities, and it's not really about don't do bad stuff yourself. Because 99.9999999% of all the people who do bio, who dabble in bio across the planet, are completely benign. They're doing it for fun. They're doing it because they want to advance biomedicine. Whatever, but. But what you're trying to to instill in them is a sense of responsibility so that if they see that one person who's gone off the reservation, they have to tell someone about that. Um, Josh Lederberg, uh, in 1998, so former Nobel laureate, uh, perhaps one of the most famous U.S. biologists who has ever lived, one of the greatest biologists ever, uh, 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 this is a paraphrase of what later said because I forgot to bring the quote with me. But what he said was, there's no technological answer to biological weapons. If there is an answer at all, it lies in the realm of ethical and moral responsibility. And then he added, but how responsive is the sociopath to ethical considerations? And the answer is, he's not. But that's where bystanders come in. I mean, th- this is an insanely difficult... Problem for the intelligence community because the the IC knows how to prosecute programs or activities where there's a defined target set. So country X may have a BW program, and there's a there's a there there's tradecraft, there's protocols to how you go about breaking into that and penetrating that. There there, there are similar protocols and tradecraft for for going after identified groups, whether it's Al Qaeda or whatever. For the lone actor, there is no established, how do you you go get a a BW lone actor? There's no target, the IC works when you have a target. Doesn't mean you'll be successful in penetrating the target by any means, but they know how to, I I can't say we, I'm not part of that anymore. Uh, They know how to do that. For lone actor, where's the target? That's where bystanders comes in. So my recommendation to the panel would be, uh, and Ed can't say this because he's a current government employee. He's not allowed to do this well. I'm speaking personally. Uh, We need a lot more ed views. A lot. And not just in this country. It's got to be international. This is an international problem. You can have somebody in, I don't care, pick a country randomly, Ecuador, whatever, who for whatever reason, you know, has has an ax to grind against this country. How are you going to know about that person, right? Or, and that, or that person could do something in, in, uh, in Ecuador that happens to be a contagious agent and we end up with it anyway. So it's got to be an international activity. Uh, I think there needs to be uh, the, the fostering of, of ethics-based programs for biology students. You can start at the college level, but it's got to fit you down to high schools at least, right? Uh, and, and the purpose again is, is not just to say don 't do bad things yourself because that 's not going to be relevant to most people it 's you have to take responsibility for everyone else, all right? Uh, You're you're trying to instill that sense of responsibility, which includes the obligation to report, whether it's a family member, your best buddy, whatever. You have a societal obligation, an ethical obligation to do that. Uh, I do think there needs to be more research to understand the whole bystander process because different cultures around the world will have different ways of acceptable reporting. So what might work in the United States or the UK might not work in Bangladesh for cultural reasons, or it might, I don't know, but the research hasn't been done to figure out how do you do bystanders internationally. Um, And so um, I I do think there needs to be a a, a fostering of, of... of international programs, not just U.S.-based programs on, on bioethics, and it's got to be at the lowest level possible. And this is something that's over time. This is not going to be doesn't happen overnight. The point is today doesn't exist in a formal sense. So something like that needs to be institutionalized, and it's got to go on forever, because this problem is going to be with us for a very, very, very long time. Thank you.
5: Uh, Thanks, Doctor. Uh, That was uh, really good. Actually, what you you did was a subset of the general lone wolf problem. You did it uh, relating to uh, uh, biological weapons, Mm -hmm. and um, uh, I thought two things that were very helpful to me. One was that uh, you cited that study, uh, which was interesting. That sixty percent of the lone wolf study told somebody or, or, or at least mm-hmm. if not specifically said I'm going to uh, attack the Myanmar embassy mm-hmm. I presume they said something that should have raised mm-hmm. uh, concern
0: right.
5: So, and the second was that you had the two examples am I right that the uh, I don't know whether the study showed that mm-hmm. the individual um, in Indonesia had not uh, been on the screen of law enforcement before yeah. he posted that. That's and
7: correct. And the same with the Polish example, yeah. totally not on anybody's radar screen at all. So these are people who beforehand had no reason to, to be of suspicion to the authorities. And all of a sudden, boom, there they go. So
5: it, it, um, it always seemed to me that uh, when you're dealing with lone wolves, the the concept that I guess began in New York, I don't know. It and then was also adopted by the Department of Homeland Security maybe it started in DHS which is see something, say something mm-hmm. Th- that is uh, uh, uniquely and almost indispensably irrelevant to um, lone wolves obviously mm-hmm. Um, and the examples you give and the numbers you give from that study argue are strongly for that. Were you going to say something?
7: I was just going to say, see, see something, say something. So if I'm in a, in a subway, for example, and I see somebody doing something that makes me nervous, I don't know who this person is. I'm, there's a good chance I'll report that. If, I'm, if I happen to be working in a lab somewhere, so I have a buddy who's dabbling in bio, my best friend, it's, it's it's i found my point is it's easier to report someone you don't even know on a sub in a subway car, than it is to report a family member, or a, 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 an esteemed work colleague. And so again, this is where the, there needs to be some more work done on what motivates bystanders to report in various situations across different cultures.
5: Because in uh, the Polish case, you had both of those. You had the uh, family member, wife, who knew right. enough about what was going on to be concerned about mm-hmm. the questions your husband mm-hmm. was asking, and as you reported, you had students the student. or colleagues at total universities, so they were uh, ethical, and in that sense, mm-hmm.
3: heroic.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask just a, a question, you, uh, do you say Gerberding? yeah, yeah okay. like the
6: baby suit. <laughs> 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 That's easy. Um,
5: so, uh, I, I appreciated your directness in saying that during the Ebola crisis you you were feeling remorse. Why weren't we prepared? And um, you mentioned a couple of things that strike me. One was that we've cut back, we built up, and then we've cut back because maybe because of the distance from. The anthrax attacks uh, uh, the time that passes or because other priorities come along. So I take it one priority you would say uh, would be so that we're not unprepared next time would be to increase uh, funding through the U.S. public health system.
6: I think we need to come to some kind of a national agreement that there are certain capabilities that need to be built and sustained and that they can't be put in emergency budgets or things that are post-crisis and then wane when the budget needs to be balanced. And unfortunately, we all recognize the incredible budget difficulties that our Congress is placing, so I, I don't I don't misunderstand why it's hard, but I do think that we are either serious about building this capability and sustaining it or we're not, and we can't have a ping-pong of there's a crisis, let's build it up. It gradually erodes, then there's a mini flu pandemic. It gets built up again, then it erodes. Now we've got Ebola, and we make an enormous uh, appropriation for Ebola. We've got to have a, a sustained commitment to really build, invest in, and you know, dual-purpose these investments because they do address both the intentional as well as the uh, Mother Nature terrorist events. But the worst thing is to um, hire people and then, you know, your workforce goes away. People move on to Mm -hmm. other things. And you've created almost a false sense of security that you have that kind of preparedness. So, so you yes, ma'am. Follow up on that, Please. Julie.
2: To what extent does the existing <coughs> infrastructure for detecting that CDC and the states have uh, that infrastructure for detecting outbreaks, poison outbreaks? I mean, other kinds of things. Is that the infrastructure you use to build out?
6: In my opinion, absolutely. And that's why I mean by the concept of dual, dual use that the very same people, the very same laboratory capabilities, the very same biodetectors, if you're talking about environmental sampling, the very things that we need for bio threats also have the dual purpose of helping us respond to more naturally acquired and transmitted and can threats. Can ask the international question? Because there are labs. Uh, some labs that are supported in other countries. To what extent does that infrastructure, can that have dual use as
2: well? I I think it's absolutely the same answer. We build the systems to be able to detect um, events and laboratories to be able to safely, reliably, and rapidly um, screen for and confirm uh, uh, diseases and events. So we can't just build systems to detect unusual events. You have to build a system that works day in, day out. A
7: very important
6: point because what they're arguing is that you shouldn't jerry-build the system for, for bio, uh, terrorism, right. for biodefense. Mm-hmm. You have to build out the existing uh, system. And, and I, w- I would like to just make one really important point about the Department of Defense Laboratories on a global basis, the NAMRU and the and the Army laboratories that are strategically located are absolutely essential to this kind of surveillance if we didn't have NAMRU we wouldn't know what to put in our flu vaccine so um, it seems um, kind of a most people aren't aware that these laboratories basically serve as global public health laboratories around the world, and as the CDC director, I've felt like it was my responsibility to step up and really champion the military lab system. And this how is critical. Is
2: the WHO the infrastructure in
6: this world? Well,
2: I... The CDC has had people allocated there for... Yeah, I mean,
6: I think we have come to recognize that there are some structural issues with the WHO, and one of them has... To do with the fact that the Director General, of the WHO, does not really have jurisdiction over the regional WHO offices, and that was certainly a concern during Ebola. But in addition, the WHO itself is not properly funded to create global laboratory support. It relies on partnerships with governments and the entities like the CDC. There
2: are some in
5: Northern
6: Europe, but not not in really. It's where not a global network of, of strong laboratory capability and response. Sorry.
5: No, no, that was great. So that, let me follow up. So, so uh, h- how do we get to where you think we should be? In other words, um, what what is the? Let's start globally first. What what's the global mechanism for achieving what we're describing? If it's not the WHO, or is it to strengthen the WHO? I th-
2: I think that there's a lot of interest in strengthening the WHO, but I think it's also important to recognize that WHO doesn't have deep human resources and capability to put in countries to supplement or work from the outside. WHO has technical assistance and norms to help countries, but the strongest assistance is coming from other country partners. And, and in this, I think the U.S. has been a leader. And to address the what we can do, I think we look at the countries where we have had a solid impact. For example, the U.S. has partnered in the long term and effectively with the governments of Uganda, Vietnam, and I think most significantly of Thailand, to partner in building a skilled laboratory workforce that doesn't just ramp up during outbreaks, but that tests itself on a regular basis with detecting disease outbreaks at events of any origin regularly, shows its capabilities, and um, because it operates sustainably, can ramp up.
5: So why those three countries? How, do, how did that happen? By the invitation. Actually. By invitation. Those are three countries that were... In exactly. And those are three... The three, three c- countries that asked for help.
2: They're three countries that asked for help and were open to partnership with U.S. government agencies that came for the long haul. Uh-huh. Did not just parachute in during an outbreak, but came in and said, we'll train, train you for 30 years. That did that? Um, CDC and USAID have been the longest partners, and uh, DOD has more recently come to the table. Those this is,
5: uh, on this uh, question, I had to implement some of it, I had to get to where you think we should be. What about uh, domestically, just so I understand it anyway? Is, is this something that um, has to come from the White House? OMB. OMB. That's <laughs> usually right. <laughs> yeah.
6: Uh, there, there are there is a national, at least I, I, I believe there is a, a current national laboratory plan, which really lays out what the capabilities requirements are and what needs to happen. There are standards of l- levels of laboratory capability that have been evolved, and state and local health departments build to certain levels of capability. Um, I, I really. You know, just to cut to the chase here, I don't think it's a, a, the problem is that we don't know what to do. I think it's that we don't make a sustained investment in assuring that we get it done and we're not holding the system accountable for demonstrating the ongoing progress towards success. And, it, and, and that's, uh, you know, that's something that is directly related to appropriation.
5: Let me open this up to
3: other members of the <laughs> uh, Dr. Gerberding, you, you know, cited the, the example of, of Ebola, and you said that the government has long known of this threat, uh, and you said that the biotechnology industry has long had the capability to respond to the, to the threat, but the plane didn't meet, and the, 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 the structures we have to do that are Varna and the Special Reserve Fund, uh, and. The problem, the part of the problem is that um, from the point of view of the companies, because very of much we have a break, eat these products, um, from the, part of the point of view of the companies, and many of them are small companies, uh, it's not always clear what the government wants. There's not a five-year plan. Uh, it's not clear that... If you make the product, they will buy it. There's no market for the product, so mm-hmm. so if the government doesn't ensure procurement and, and ensure it early, uh, no one will uh, take the risk, uh, uh, and particularly not the investors that need to invest in those companies if those companies are going to long exist. And so you talked about the need to take it to refresh Varda, and I think that this panel really needs to make some strong recommendations. It's it's not it, it's important to have enough funding for BARDA it's important to have enough funding for the special reserve fund um, but if, if that if there can't be more certainty for the okay. companies that we are asking to um, meet this critical need then the critical need won't be met and I'd be interested in your comments on
2: that or any yeah,
6: I, I completely agree with you Tim. I, I think the, um, the prioritization process um, understandably changes as threats change or circumstances change so i um, um, have nothing but respect and appreciation for how hard it is to try to stay ahead of that curve. Um, but I do think that now we've learned a lot of lessons from BARDA since its inception, and it would be a good idea to step back and kind of review it collaboratively and what's working, what isn't working. P- different industry partners have had different experiences as well, and um, conceptually it's just, it's a brilliant opportunity, but we need to make the most of it. And I, oh yeah, I will be Fully transparent here that Merck has a Ebola vaccine, and we certainly didn't have an Ebola vaccine program before the Ebola crisis occurred in Africa, and we um, did not have any basic science in Ebola vaccinology. But a very small company, as you know, had taken the intellectual property from the Canadian government and brought it to a point where it was clear this was a viable opportunity, and. And yet uh, a small company can't possibly scale up and, you know, get into the manufacturing uh, volume situation like a large company can do. So I think the lesson there is that from the very beginning, we need to understand the importance of partnerships and how do you facilitate the legal surround to that partnership evolution and then the whole – problem that has always been uh, a rate-limiting step. I'm just thinking back to the smallpox days of the liability. So, you know, if you're doing a clinical trial and you're about to release a large-scale life-saving, epidemic-stopping vaccine for the first time in countries where the systems for informed consent and adverse event monitoring and so on and so forth are not Optimized, there's an enormous liability that you know, we certainly had to step up to as, as a company to say we're, we're, there will be no heroes in this effort, but it's the right thing to do. So we have to, we have to do what we have to do. So uh, there's an opportunity to learn here.
4: Okay. Really like yeah,
0: you got some um, other questions. <coughs> could you help me... Uh, Understand when it's when our friends in the intelligence community and in the public health community identify particular threats, either pending or we've we've seen them, be they from a terrorist cell or naturally occurring, anthrax, Ebola, smallpox. Those were on lists that I saw in 2001. And I got the NIH and I got the CDC. And yet today I don't think, I mean, I'm not sure we've got uh, adequate uh, detection capability for anthrax and we've always we went through this trauma associated with Ebola. So what is the role of these institutions once the government identifies a potential health problem, either naturally occurring or potentially uh, thrown at us from terrorists? I just need to understand from your perspective why we were so ill-prepared and why no basic research was done on vaccines for Ebola. Or did I miss something? Was there basic research that was done that was on the shelf? And if it was done, we did not have the capability to take that research and begin to... uh, Manufacture. I mean, I I just, I, one of the challenges we're going to have, I think, making specific recommendations to the Hill is, is a better understanding of the role these institutions play, how far you go internally in research, where you connect with the private sector to have that basic research done, and then what, what point in time and where if uh, do we have a surge a manufacturing surge capability to get them out uh, to get the vaccines or the antidotes out there i just would you just walk us through that process
6: well, I'll take, a, a, I'll take a stab at it, I think there are others in the room who might want to chime in. You know, we have national response plans, thanks to the uh, Department of Homeland Security, and they do have robust... We have ob- one for Katrina,
0: too, and they didn't use it. Well, so it but they impact?
6: have robust objectives, and the agency accountability for the various steps in the process are laid out in the plans. The plans are not generally exercised. Um, the plans are not fully funded, and therefore you can't really expect the performance to be what it should be. So I think that's just kind of a broad... Perspective. The second point is that we do have a large, long list of threats. There are the agriculture threats and there are the human threats, and it's probably unrealistic to think that we can solve every threat uh, in, in parallel. So we have to make priorities, and um, if I were looking at the threat list prospectively, I might not have put Ebola at the top of the list either from the standpoint of U.S., citizen protection. So there are some threats that I think we've advanced much further in being able to take off the table. Oh, yeah. Anthrax, for example, in terms of the vaccines that are available in the countermeasures and um, the biodetection, BioWatch-type systems that allow environmental sampling for right. these agents to occur. And then there are others that we are further behind on. But I, I think where we need to have broad leadership agreement in, in our cascade of government is on the prioritization process and where what is the result we're trying to achieve so that we're very clear that for this one we want vaccines and countermeasures for this one we want the earliest possible detection that we all work toward the same set of goals and they're prioritized and they're properly funded if
0: we're sitting at the table to set those priorities in your judgment if you could if you got a blank sheet you got a blank board and you say Who do you want at that table to set those priorities?
6: Well who is that practice
0: isn't contagion but Ebola is. So uh, yeah, who's sitting at fact, the table right now? There. I don't know.
6: I, I don't know. Who, who would who, be at the table? Who should be at the table, in my sure. opinion. is Obviously, I believe the locus of overall accountability is the Department of Homeland Security because that's what we're talking about here. But I think for the um, the threat mitigation, that is the responsibility of the Assistant Secretary for, for, for preparedness and response within HHS. And that, that, that individual, and we have a very good one right now, that individual really needs to and be empowered and supported to to build out these operational plans to achieve these goals and objectives. We have to have somebody from the Intelligence community. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a multi-agency effort, of course. But I do think that, you know, uh, my, my theory is you should be planning horizontally, but when it comes to executing, it needs to be vertical, and you need to have very clear ideas of who's vertically accountable. Right. And sometimes that gets a little mushy, as you know.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs>
5: Just one point. It,
7: um, yeah, yes, the intelligence community does have a place at the table, but bear in mind that it is extraordinarily difficult for the intelligence community to actually tell you what represents a threat. They can do it in a notional sense. They'll say, somebody's doing, working on this. Country X is working on that. Uh, does that mean that country X is actually going to incorporate that as part of their doctrine? So it's a, it's a very, it's one thing to say research. It's another thing to say there's a clear intent to do something with that. And, and, uh, and my other point would be that uh, if, if I were a bad guy, I, and since everything that we're doing is public, vaccine for this, vaccine for that, countermeasure for this, and so on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to engineer around it. I'm going to do something that, that you will not be prepared for if I really, really want to hurt you. But okay? you're well,
2: distinguishing between uh, countries and Ab- individuals.
7: Absolutely. Or, or, or terrorist groups. Or terrorist groups. I had no problem warning
2: about
7: mm-hmm. I mean, they were very mm-hmm. specific. When, when it comes to BW, that, that's a very difficult problem for the IC.
6: I just want to add one thing, which is sort of the 3.0, or
7: sort of 1.0
6: was the good old days, 2.0 is where we are now. And 3.0 is recognizing what's happened with bioscience in the interim. And, you know, our old way of thinking here's the pathogen, let's make a unique vaccine to this. We've got to move into a platform world where we're agile, can sub in and out antigens, where we've got the ability to rapidly create monoclonal antibodies, you know, with scale and speed. There's a whole lot of technical capabilities here that, you know, BARDA and the NIH and, and the private sector need to really come together on because what even 10 years ago was pushing the envelope is now sort of a, you know standard and we we're so much further in our biological capability that we ought to be able to think a little bit differently about to our
2: technology because
6: we can be more nimble
7: exactly and yeah
6: both in surveillance as exactly well as surveillance.
7: Julie, how do we get to 3.0? Can I just... How long uh, what, what Julie just said... Okay, uh, what you just said is a way of compensating. I, I, I applaud that because that's how you compensate for the fact that the IC isn't going to have... necessarily have the answers that you need in terms of what's the clear and present danger. So by having a much broader approach that, that is very agile and very rapid and very accurate and very effective, you get around the, the reality that it's a very difficult problem for the IC.
6: So, Tevi, t- to your to your question, how do we get there to 3.0? Um, you know, this by definition high risk research, and we're in an environment right now where we're we're risk averse in our research funding because we don't have the investment that we need. And So even the entities like DARPA, from my understanding, that are intended to push that kind of an envelope, we're really scaling back and being much more parsimonious on where we are investing. So you will not get, you know, the needle on the dial moved if you're conservative about what you're willing to try. We've got to place a lot of bets. Most of them won't work, but that's the only way that we find the, you know, the the wonderful golden egg that will get the job done right.
5: Dr. Khan, let me ask you this question from the IC. Um, after 9 11, the anthrax, which was carried out, as we know, by Al Qaeda, violent Islamist extremists, <coughs> um, then came the anthrax attacks. The immediate um, uh, suspicion was that it mm-hmm. was, had the same source, but of course there's been no evidence. That, uh, mm-hmm. uh, in fact, the evidence, such as it is, points in a very different direction as mm-hmm. to who caused it. So uh, as you look back now, um, thirteen plus years since then, one of the things that thankfully uh, uh, surprises me is that the violent Islamist extremists have not uh, carried out a successful biological weapons attack. I always worried that that was easier Mm -hmm. to do for Mm -hmm. the reasons you've talked Mm -hmm. about—people in their apartments Mm -hmm. and
3: garages—than
5: a nuclear, uh, for instance. but uh, now we've got ISIS or IS mm-hmm. or ISIL, whatever you'd mm-hmm. uh, like, and it seems to be a breaking all, uh, and part of its mode of operating seems to be to, to, because it's a terrorist organization, it wants to terrorize us. So now it mm-hmm. shows pictures of it cutting the heads of 21 mm-hmm. people up. Um, it, it, does that, in your opinion, coming out of the intelligence community, raise at least the possibility that or the probability that ISIS would attempt to carry off a biological attack against a target? Uh,
7: the honest answer is uh, nobody really knows. My personal opinion would, would be yes. And what I would be concerned about uh, particular, I would be concerned about two things. Number one, there are Europeans, let's say a few Americans, but also a lot of Europeans right. who are educated uh, joining ISIS. I wonder if uh, the backgrounds of any of those of, the, of those individuals have anything to do with biology or chemistry, and that would be a hell of a concern for me if that were the case. Number two, because they control territory, they have a sanctuary, which means they can do things there. It's like doing something in your apartment. How would I know if you're doing something in your apartment? If you control that territory, you have the ability to do something in a way that, that no one else is going to, to, to know about. So my personal opinion would be yes, that that would be of concern, uh, especially with a group like ISIS, who, who seems to be extending the boundaries of what yeah. is morally acceptable behavior. Right.
5: It's, the, it's the, 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 the way in which they have catapulted over mm-hmm. the other Islamic yeah, and
7: I, and I guess also I would be especially concerned if, if they look like they're they're in they're going down uh, because when a group is in extremist, the rules change and you need to do something that has a huge impact at that point. And at that point, I would be concerned about any kind of terrorist activity directed against us. And obviously BW would be the, the uh, would be perhaps the most dire, depending upon the capability of the individual they ask to do the job.
4: Thanks, Senator. Um, Dr. Khan, I was very intrigued by your comments about bystander issue and of course I think as Senator Lieberman just said that's not just limited to the bio threat it's it, it's not just limited to terrorism it, right. it extends to crime in general and I think I remember mm-hmm. reading after the July 7th bombing out in in, uh, in London. Mm-hmm. We were reading a story about how mm-hmm. people noticed that in the uh, the bushes outside the apartment where the, the mm-hmm. bombers had been mixing the chemicals mm-hmm. had mysteriously been dying, and nobody mm-hmm. said anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, once again, it's the kind of thing that happens everywhere. So the question, I guess, is you've teed up the issue that how do we motivate bystanders who see something to say something, and you can look at different levels. You know, there's. You said there's a societal and ethical obligation to do to to say something if you really mm-hmm. think there's a possible you know chance that there's there's terrorism behind mm-hmm. whatever they've seen. Um, but in our country, there's no legal obligation to do so. Correct. And mm-hmm. I don't know that that's going to change anytime soon. No, it's
3: So yes. I, I think that's
4: probably not mm-hmm. um, the. Uh, uh, that's probably not an outcome we can expect anytime soon. Mm-hmm. There are rewards, you mm-hmm. know, that hey, if, if you. Provide information that results in the foiling of a terrorist plot, then you get a reward. That raises the issues that tips line had back mm-hmm. after 9/11, and sort of the people think that that's going to create kind of a KGB mm-hmm. kind of uh, rat on your mm-hmm. neighbor kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what would be what would be some of the, the possible ways of incentivizing people? And the, you know, if you talk about the area where this threat is greatest, as you said, in labs,
7: mm-hmm.
4: and, you know, bio um, biological concerns in labs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your idea that there be a tip line that people call in if they see something. Um, that's great, mm-hmm. um, but can you make it even stronger than that? Can you make it a condition of employment that anybody who works in a place like that, who sees something that could read, mm-hmm. you, you come up with the, the term- legal terminology mm-hmm. that reasonably, a
7: mm-hmm.
4: uh, reasonable person would think is concerning mm-hmm. must um, make a report. And I guess in turn you can make that a, a condition of certification for the lab. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. just coming up with ideas, but mm-hmm. this has been a tough nut to crack forever, but especially since 911. And do you have any thoughts about it in the box? Yeah, I, th- I think
7: I th- you raise really good points. I think you have to come at this from a lot of different angles. So you can, and, and, and again, I think Ed, you is going to address some of this in his comments later this afternoon because that's what he's been doing. Uh, in his role with the FBI, is going around to labs, going around to do-it-yourself bio meetings, to iGen meetings, uh, and engaging the bioscience community. But but it's really about um, instilling a a culture of responsibility, because at the end of the day, you can have a legal obligation, that doesn't mean you're going to follow it, all right? So it really does come down to you have a personal responsibility, you are your brother's keeper. That's it. Uh, and 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 I think most people in the biosciences are very receptive to that. Again, Ed will talk about this. He's had tremendous reception. For he 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 talks to packed audiences. People want this. They want the, people want to know that they're responsible and they're willing to step up to that. So I really I, I don't think the you can I don't I wouldn't do it legally. I would I would it's it's about having classes at high school levels so if you have a biology curriculum there should be an ethics piece of that if you're dabbling in molecular bio or bacteriology or virology and that's done at the high school level certainly in this country and in western Europe and in other places around the world too that ought to be part of the curriculum you need to start at a young age instilling in individuals that they're, they're, they have the potential to do spectacularly wonderful things for the benefit of mankind with biology, but there's a flip side, and they have a personal responsibility there. There's no easy answer to this, but you do have to come at this in as many ways as you can at the school level. The, at the private industry level government level government I mean with the government you could say every government lab employee will attend you know once a year uh and a program on bioethics. So that you can mandate for government facilities. You can maybe even mandate that for uh, for for organizations or institutions, uh, research uh, facilities that receive government funding. But you really want to do this, I think, at the lowest level. You want to start getting kids in school who are playing with biology because if you're touching on something within the labs, you're getting one population that doesn't necessarily get uh, the individual who happens to be uh, an IT Person. There's, there's a great picture. In uh, 2008, there was an article in, in the Associated Press. lady in San Francisco who had put together a beautiful biology lab in her apartment. She was moving genes around. It was completely legit. It was fun for her. She was an, I, she was an IT. She wasn't a bio person. She was an IT. And uh, so you see a, uh, synthetic biology. That's biology and engineering. So you're getting people who aren't hardcore biologists playing in biology, and you need this instruction at, at the lowest level possible.
5: Uh, I was about to have uh, a question somebody else on the panel, but it 's a longer discussion. It was you you 've had experience <laughs> in criminal law, and is it probably not for now? This is a really interesting discussion to what, To what extent is the criminal law, is the criminal law able to hold accountable somebody who knows that a crime is uh, being planned, about to be committed, and doesn't uh, um, notify the police.
4: Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's the point that we were just making. I don't believe that that is criminalized. I yeah. mean, I think there are countries where they do have such yeah. obligations.
5: I don't think we do. We, we don't.
4: And I mean, and just to play devil's advocate to you, your, your point about how we can have all the laws we want, but unless it's in the culture, we're not going to get people to tell on the bystander to tell what they've seen. Maybe it's the lawyer in me, but I also think that in the situation that you um, posited, mm-hmm. where it's it's you know Bruce Ivan's friend noticing something, that you can have all the culture you want, but there might be a situation where he says, "I don't want to tell him, my friend." And is there a question? Is, is there a benefit to having some quote-unquote legal administrative requirement that will? help that person overcome the loyalty to the friend that they don't want to tell them?
7: Yeah, I think the answer is yes. So again, you come at this from lots of different angles. Mm-hmm. So, and legal is one of them. I just, you don't, you don't want, you're not putting all your eggs in the legal basket, obviously. So absolutely, you come at it from different angles. And point well taken with Ivan's. His colleagues did not, I mean, some of the techs who worked for him raised concerns, but not people at his level. All right, so yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely yes to legal. And anything else you can think of?
0: First of all, I We'd love to have Dr. Fisher, Dr. Gurding, after you leave, we'd love to have you put some thoughts on paper, short and long term recommendations in this area of surveillance and detection. You've been been very generous with your time, very, very thoughtful in response to our questions. Just some longer terms, short and, and Obviously, we're not going to take a laundry list uh, to Congress because we're just talking about setting priorities. But from your perspective, what would they be? I want to follow up something that people do, Dr. Perlman, because I think it's very interesting. You said it's about time we figure out a way to engage in high-risk research, knowing full well uh, that we'll be... We won't get, every time, the outcome we, we de- that we desire. I mean, I, I get it. So if you were going to create a platform with that, would it be a permanent uh, entity? Would it be a lab or a series of labs where the joint funding and responsibility was from both the government and the private sector? Uh, I mean, I personally think the notion of... You know, the a little bit of research here and a little bit of... Re- I mean, personally, out that kind of research to individual pharmaceutical companies may not be as effective as saying, okay, your mission today, tomorrow, and forever in this entity working with us as high-risk research across this." Have you thought about what the infrastructure would look like?
6: I, I've thought about it in a lot of different ways. Of, you know, obviously... Creating an innovation environment is something that every pharmaceutical company is challenged to figure out for their own interest. So I don't think anyone has completely solved the problem. But, you know, I like to look at where is the most exciting innovation going on in any sector? Um, You know, is it at Google? You know, where, what are the models that people who are really driving innovation forward use to get the collective ideas and unleash the energy and the creativity of the people they're trying to attract into that area? And one resource that is not conspicuous in this area are the really brightest, youngest scientists coming out with the most fertile and creative minds. So, you know, imagine what it would be like if you took these young, very digitally tech-savvy kids who are interested in biology and gave them prizes or created... Um, Hubs where they could really come work with more established scientists, but to take on some of these most challenging problems and really engage them at the stage of their career where right now they're starving for NIH funding. And that can be done in partnership with industry, it could be done in lots of models through NIH or whatever. So I don't think there's any one given structural solution, but I think it's the who um, we bring to bear on the problem that is the most important part.
2: I I, I completely agree with that. And I think that one of the challenges now is that we've created a very conservative funding model for basic research in which we reward success. Um, But establishing that success takes a very long time. And and, uh, the... Age of first award from NIH is getting uh, longer and longer and longer. Uh, now that I'm in that demographic, I find it less objectionable. But um, in terms of in terms of innovation, the idea of creating these safe hubs where people can brainstorm, innovate, and try to approach these challenges of emerging diseases.